Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 7. We in 2 Kings, the seventh chapter there. This text, we, we did five last week, and we're skipping to seven, uh, primarily because uh, six, seven, eight, that sort of section there is all intertwined in such a way that uh, it's hard to kind of like uh, preach the whole thing. It's one of the challenges of preaching. Uh, The context is king, and so you need to know what's going on in those situations, but it all tumbles out and interlocks in a way that uh, it would be, I'd be preaching forever, right? This is like five sermons. And so what we do is we try to zoom in on a section that stands on its own. And that's what we're going to do this morning. That's why we're skipping to chapter seven. Also, chapter six is not PG and it's, it's kind of gross. And so you can read that later. Um, I saw a bunch of you just look down right now and you're trying to read it real fast. You're like, he said it's not PG. Now I'm really interested uh, in what it is. By way of context, I will just tell you this. Chapter five dealt with the Arameans. Naaman, you remember that guy, leprosy? He was Aramean, what we would call Syrian now. Uh, same 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 group of people in the same city in the same location. The other important detail for you to keep in mind is that uh, Samaria, where this is happening, the city is under siege, which means the Aramean forces are around the Israeli city of Samaria. They have surrounded it and they are not allowing supplies or food to come in or out, all right? It's very important. And so there's a famine, everybody's hungry, they're starving to death, all right? That's the context. That's what's happening in this story. But let me pray, and then we will look at four guys, um, four, yeah, four guys whom we do not relate to at all, all right? There's nothing about their lives that we relate to except for what happens in this situation is extremely relevant to nearly every day of our lives, all right? Let's talk about that here after we pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have provided for us in the gospel, in the Bible. God, as we examine the lives in this moment, this episode of these four nameless people from where they came from, we don't know. Their backstory, we do not know. Uh, but this moment, God, we, we, we hold it up and we are encouraged by it to live more trusting of you. God, we do thank you for the rain. We pause. We're so guilty of asking for things and then you give them to us and we move on to the next item. So God, in this moment, we thank you for rain, for the way that it will nourish the crops and the livestock, for the way it supplies our lakes and our rivers. God, for the way it brings respite from the heat. God, we also thank you that it rained for those who are unjust as it rained for those who are just. And in that, we see your compassion. We see your grace. We see your your unending mercy. And so God, we pause in these times to thank you for the rain. It's in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. Ginsend, most of our Ginsenders are back, our college students, would y'all welcome them back to uh, worship service? 
If you're unaware or haven't been paying attention, we sent 16 students out uh, and they went around the nation. They served for uh, quite a few weeks there and they did mission work and they are back. Our goal as a church is to send 100 students out in one summer. And so we are taking steps towards that. I look forward to that day. I think next summer could be that day when 100 of our students go out on mission for Christ. And uh, we're a part of that. And so I'm excited. I'm excited that you guys are back and uh, serving where you served. I know the churches are thankful that you went and we are thankful that you came back, all right? We at Second Baptist love college students. We hate it when you're gone and we love it when you're back, all right? That is, that is how we live around here, okay? So Second Kings chapter seven, verse three begins with this. Now, four men with a skin disease or leprosy. Now, leprosy is similar to what Naaman was dealing with last week in chapter five. Leprosy is an illness that most often when it's referred to in the Bible was a bacterial infection that that affects the tips of your skin. That's where it really takes root. So a person with leprosy, uh, it would be like the ends of their fingers begin to eat off, all right? It's It's not pretty, it's not good. It'll also affect your nose, your ears, your ear tips, that sort of stuff, your toes, anything like that. And so you'll, you'll have these open wounds and, and that sort of stuff. The people who have leprosy are considered to be unclean, both spiritually and physically. They are forced out of the camp. They are forced out of the city, out literally to wait their death, right? They are out there. They have no means of providing for themselves, no shelter, no food. And so they are forced out of the group, isolated, hungry, desperate and in despair. And so to kind of put that in our world, could you imagine uh, your teenage son contracting leprosy and you are forced by the community, you're forced by the civilization to um, exclude him, to push him outside of the city so that nobody else is affected, nobody else is contagious. And there you just have to cut him off and let him uh, die, right? So that would be the sort of situation that these four men are in. It's a situation that they have faced. It says that they were at the entrance of the city gate outside of the city. And then they said to one another, why just sit here until we die? If we say, let's go into the city, we will die there because there's a famine, there's no food in the city. But if we sit here, we will also die. So now come, let, oh, come on, let us, let us surrender to the Aramean camp. And if they let us live, we live. And if they kill us, we die, all right? It's a horrible situation. This is a bad day, right? It's not hard to see that these guys are in a, uh, they're in a tough spot. They're in a bad way. They are surrounded by death and they have death within them. Everything about this situation is death. And you can hear it as they begin to weigh their options. They think we could go back into the city and there's no food in there. Everybody's dying in there. We would just die in there. Or we could sit here and die, die of starvation, die of hunger. This is, this is kind of pointless. We'll just waste away right here. Or maybe we could surrender ourselves to the Aramean camp. We'll go just a short walk. We'll go to the enemy forces and we'll give ourselves to them. They could kill us. It would be a mercifully fast death, right? It's better than starving to death. Or perhaps they might help us. They might give us some food. Now, most of us sitting here going, why on earth would they think that the Arameans or the, yeah, the Arameans would help them in any way? I don't know. They're just desperate. They're in despair. They are in a, what we would call a hopeless situation. Not only is there no food, not only are they infected and diseased, but also, as I've mentioned, there is a, a force, an enemy force that is there to kill them. 
All right? That's why that camp is there, to kill them and to kill everyone they know. Lepers were beggars, right? So the way that they would get any sort of food is to sit by the city gate, and as people came in and out, they would beg for food, and people would give them some alms or some sort of charity, that sort of stuff. But because of the siege, because of those people, that has completely cut off. Listen, what I'm trying to paint here is an accurate picture of despair, of hopelessness. They are in a situation, they are confronted with a situation in which they have no good options. Have you ever been in that space? Have you ever sat in that zone? Just this last week over dinner, for whatever reason, we started telling the boys, Jackie and I started recounting to our sons all of the times in our marriage, we're almost married for 16 years, all the times in our marriage in which we have faced a situation that we did not expect something, you know, comes up and there's no money and we don't know how we're going to get any money. We, something breaks and then it's not, you know, when it rains, it pours, you know, one thing breaks and then this goes out and then the car dies and that sort of stuff. And I remember moments sitting at the dinner table when the boys were, were tiny, tiny, or when we only had one or only had two. And, and she and I are sitting there talking in a way that we don't want to scare the kid, but we're thinking, I don't know what we're going to do. You ever been there? We were telling the boys not to scare them away from like growing up, but to tell them that God, God always stepped into those moments. He always provided. Have you ever sat down with your spouse and made a list of all the things that you felt that way before and, and how God just provided and he kept providing? It's a bunch. It's more than you think. It's, it's a lot more than you think. I don't know. Maybe you're in a financial situation. Maybe you walked in here, car broke, unexpected repair, a bill that just keeps piling up. You weren't able to pay it. Now interest is hitting it and you feel like you're drowning, right? You don't have a good option. Or maybe there's a parenting circumstance. And I'm not talking about your, your child as being disruptive. I'm talking about the moments, which are far worse. The moments in which something is happening to them and you would do anything to make them not hurt, but you can't. There's nothing you can do. You don't, you don't have any recourse. Maybe you're walking in here with a medical fear. Doctor has found something, it's precancerous, it's scary. You don't understand what the circumstances are. There's a complication with the pregnancy. There's all sorts of things that are going on and you are absolutely powerless in those circumstances. That's what's happening right here. That's what these guys are feeling. So yeah, you don't have leprosy. There's not an enemy force surrounding you and you're not starving to death, but you can feel the way they feel, right? In that story though, there are two moments, two offhand comments that they really encourage me. The first one is found here in verse four. It says, let's surrender. Let's surrender. Let's think about surrendering for just a moment. Surrendering means to stop fighting, to stop fighting, that they are no longer going to fight. They are no longer gonna resist. They are no longer gonna put up a stronghold. That's what surrender means. But when we think about that, who are they surrendering to? Who, what's going on with the surrendering? I don't think that the Armenian forces, the captains, the guards, they're all sitting around strategizing. You know, you know, there's four guys at that gate. We're gonna have to get around those dudes, right? I'm not sure how we're gonna get around those four guys, you know, that sort of stuff. They're not surrendering their post. In reality, what's happening in the story is they are surrendering to the reality of the circumstances. They are finally coming to the end of themselves. They're saying, all right, let's just stop pretending that I can fix this. 
How about I just look in the mirror and realize that there are things bigger than me and that I am not able on my own to fight against this. They surrender, they let go. Now to surrender, you do need to surrender to someone or something. They say that let's surrender to the Aramean camp. Let's surrender to the Arameans. But in reality, as we read this story, they're not actually surrendering to the Arameans. They are the people from Aram, the Syrians. They're not surrendering. They're actually surrendering to God's plan. See, here, here's one of the, the neat things about what happens in our spiritual walk and in our spiritual life. The thing that we see as evil, that thing that surrounds us that's really hard to deal with, that thing that hurts, that thing that scares us, a lot of times God is using that thing to pressure out the last bit of pride and arrogance, to put down our arms and to finally surrender. I know that that's what happens in my own life, that there are times in my life where God just ratchets up the pressure where I lose something or someone, where I'm in some sort of pain, where I can't find my way out of this. And at finally, what starts to squeeze out is this anger, this pride, this self-pity. These things start to ooze out in such a way because God is just pressuring me and pushing me to where I finally recognize that I can't do this on my own. To which God says, I know. That's exactly where I was pushing you toward. To where you would finally recognize, you would finally say, I surrender. There's another phrase there. Notice this, that the surrendering is not giving up. It's not just doing nothing. You see back in verse three, now four men, skin disease, they said to each other, why just sit here? Why should I, why should I just sit here and die? Giving up would be just staying there and waiting for death to come. And, but that's not what they do. They play the cards that they are dealt. They stand up and do what it is that they can do. That they go ahead and make the decision. That they go ahead and talk to the creditor. That they go ahead and ask for another medical opinion. That they go ahead and bring it to their small group. That they don't just sit down and do nothing. And I'm telling you, as a person that has been there, when you're in these moments of despair, when it feels like there's nothing else you can do, you almost want to just like run from it, right? You don't want to do anything. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to sit here and maybe it'll get better, right? Maybe it'll go away. Maybe... Maybe the army will just go away. They don't give up, they surrender. They do what it is that they can do. They lay down their arms, they stop fighting and they surrender to what it is that God wants them to do. And when they surrender, not give up, then God does the most God thing ever. Look at verse five. So the diseased men got up at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. And when they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that no one was there. They went to the military force, thousands of troops. They went to their camp and nobody's there. I kind of picture this in my mind. Go with me for just a second. These four guys, I don't know if they're best friends or if they're just friends because they're dying together, right? They have bonded over that. And they shuffle up to this enemy forces camp and they stand there for a second, dead silent. One of them says to the other, where is everybody? The second one looks over at him. He doesn't have a nose. He says, he says, what do I look like, a soldier? Third one says, you don't look like anything. You don't even look like a human. The fourth one goes, would y'all be quiet? I'm missing an ear and I can hear everything that y'all are saying here, you know, that kind of thing. That's what happened in the story. It's in between the text right there. That's how I see it. They're standing there 
and nobody's there. Nothing is, can you picture this? Can you picture a huge camp? These four guys stumble upon, they pass the sentry, they pass the guard. There's horses, but there's no one. Verse six, for the Lord had caused, you need to underline that, for the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a large army. And the Arameans had said to each other, uh, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egypt to attack us, which is ironic because the Hittites, Egyptians, and the Jews never got along. And verse seven, so they had gotten up and they fled at twilight, abandoning their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. Just a, a hint here, if this ever happens to you, if you ever feel like the Egyptians are attacking, uh, at least take a donkey, all right? Don't just run, uh, they'll catch you. The camp was intact and they had fled for their lives, which again, I think is ironic. There's a lot of, there's a lot of mirroring happening in the story. The Arameans get up and run for their lives. It says they got up and ran for their lives, which is exactly in a manner of speaking what these four guys were doing. They got up and went for their lives. They, they, they moved for their lives and that's what this whole camp is doing. So it's pretty clear what happens in that it is not at all clear what happens. These four do not know what happened to this camp. They just appear at a camp and there's thousands of empty tents, hundreds of horses, artillery, all this sort of stuff. But what we know is what the verse says that the Lord had caused. It's a super unlikely scenario, the sort of thing that no one would have guessed or predicted. God makes the threat, not a threat. They show up and God had moved in a way that only God can do. This is where the phrase, won't he do it, comes into place, right? They show up and the armies are gone. God provided what only God can provide. And he did so with absolutely no bloodshed. Nobody dies, God eliminates the threat. And I can hear people, Christians sometimes will ask me, why doesn't God still do these sort of things? I read in the Bible where God separates the sea. Why does he still separate seas? I read where the lepers are healed and the blind see and the lame walk. Why doesn't God still do those things? And I would argue that it's probably because we don't trust God. The primary way that we relate to God is through what we call faith. It means that we lean in and we let him, that we don't understand, but based on everything we know about him, he is going to come through and we just don't trust God anymore. We trust in everything and anything other than actually trusting in God. We want him to act, but we don't trust him to act. You might say in the story, I don't see these four guys trusting God. I mean, they're surrendering to the Arameans. They're not trusting God. Well, I, I, really? Like if you and me and a couple of other people were all diseased and we're walking up to the enemy forces, you don't think one of us would say, it's gonna take an act of God for these people not to kill us where we stand, right? I think this is them doing the only thing that they knew how to do. They were literally trusting God to provide by the only means. The city doesn't have food. There's no food where they're sitting, they have food. And so if we just get to them, maybe God will work through those situations. So why doesn't God still move in this way? I think because we don't trust him. The second thing is he does. He does this sort of stuff all the time. We just don't give him credit. We will credit dumb luck or a friend or a Facebook post before we credit God actually moving in our lives. God does this sort of stuff all of the time. 
but we'll give the credit to science or to medicine or to mother nature before we recognize that that is by the means in which God worked. God does these things. God moved in a way that only he could move. These four, their entire community, their king, their nation was helpless and desperate and God is never desperate. God is not helpless. God does the impossible and it ain't nothing for him to do those things. He made the ear, he can make it here a chariot. God moves in a way that he wants to move. Your enemy armies, your unexpected expenses, your cancer, this season of life, your child's circumstances, your fear and shortcomings are nothing for God. And it's not because he's not concerned. He's concerned, he loves you. It's just because that monster isn't a monster that scares him. God doesn't check under his bed before he goes to sleep. He's not afraid of the thing that we are afraid of. There's another thing that is kind of interesting in the story. I don't know if you noticed it, but you see here in verse seven, so they had gotten up and fled at twilight. That's the Aramean forces. In the verse before, verse five, so the diseased men got up at twilight. There's two reasons that's in there. One reason is just that's the way the Jews tell stories. They repeat phrases so that you can remember the way that it unfolds. It's a, it's a mnemonic device. Got up at twilight, got up at twilight. So you kind of see those things, but I think there's something more to it. I think God is specifically telling us something to the situation, to the timing of the circumstances. Listen to me, in verse four, the four guys made the decision to trust God. In verse five, they did it. There is a huge difference in saying you trust God and actually stepping out and trusting God. It's at the moment that they stand up and take a step toward the enemy that God moves in a way that only God can move. Anybody, anybody can put a bumper sticker on their truck that says, in God we trust. But it takes an entirely different kind of person to actually budget a portion of their finances just to go to the church and say, I'm just gonna trust God with the rest. Anybody can say, I believe what God teaches. I believe in God, but it takes an entirely different person to actually read the book that he gave us to read so that we know what it is that he taught us to believe. You can say that you lean into God, but you don't lean into God. You can say that God's in control, but you won't even uh, uh, rest from your work because you are so controlling of everything that happens at your job and in your life. It is impossible to believe that people who hold on to every detail of their lives, that control every aspect of their lives, are actually believing that God is in control. At twilight, they got up. At twilight, the enemy ran. Essentially, how amazing would it be for one of those commanders of the Arameans to find out there weren't any chariots. That was four lepers. You ran from God. So they have done what they can do. God does what only God can do. And then in verse eight, and when these diseased men came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and they ate and they drank, which is good, right? They've been starving. They've been sleeping outside, that sort of stuff. So this is good. Evening, you know, twilight would have been in the time of the evening meal. So there was probably like fresh, hot meals, fires going. This is great for these lepers. And then they picked up the silver and the gold and the clothing and they went off and hid some of it. And then they came back and entered another tent and picked up the things and, and they hid those things. At first I read that and I thought, oh, that's shady. Look, at look, God's doing something for you. And you went all turned all like, uh, 
selfish. These people are dirty, but it's not. I just read that, like, if there's anything hidden or secret, I tend to distrust it, right? If, if you're hiding it, you shouldn't be doing it, right? That's just kind of a way that I was raised. But they're not doing anything necessarily wrong here. These are the spoils of war. The, the thing that really hangs me up, though, is why do army people have so much gold and silver in their tents? That's what I don't get. My dad went on deployment several times and he packed fatigues. He packed, uh, you know, like a pillow, stuff like that. He never packed like gold and silver in the family heirlooms. These guys have it in their tents, you know, and so... So the lepers took it. Then they said to each other, we're not doing what is right. This is verse nine. We're not doing what is right. Today is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, our punishment will catch up with us. So let's go tell the king's household. So you would think that this is a time of eat, drink, and be merry, but they ate, drank, and were convicted. They were worried about trouble. They were worried about punishment. And again, like I said, when you read that, you think to yourself, oh, they're worried that the king's gonna find out that they ate some of the food, right? Or that they drank some of the drink, but no, nah, that's not what they're worried about. These are beggars. They, they will eat the food and drink the drink that is in front of them, and that's good. I think the king would be fine with that, you know? They're worried that they, they, they stole the silver and the gold and the clothes and they hid those. No, they're not real worried about that. If you keep reading the rest of the story, they don't even bring that part up. When they do go to the kings, they're like, there's a bunch of food and drink over there. Oh yeah, any gold or silver? No, I didn't, you see any gold or silver? I didn't see gold or silver, you know, that sort of stuff. So they're not worried about getting in trouble for that. They're just not gonna tell anybody, you know? So that's not what they're afraid of. They're not afraid of what they took. Listen to me, they're not afraid of partaking in God's blessing. They are afraid or they are fearful of the punishment of taking that blessing and not sharing it. There were people in the city that they knew, people they knew that were hungry. They had food and they're hungry. And they said, this is not right for us to do. This reminds me of the person who, uh, who is going through some financial troubles, you know? And they pray, God, if you will let me win the lottery, if you will make this scratch off ticket, um, you know, the winning one. I went in, this is just, I just thought of this, but I was in Clarksville yesterday. I was coming back from Oklahoma. I was in Clarksville and I walked around this guy who was scratching a ticket like this. And I had to walk around him to get to the restroom at this gas station. And he looked at me like I was about to steal his scratch off ticket. I just thought of that. It was just the weirdest thing. He's like, I was like, did it win? You know, like, anyways, uh, it just reminds me of people that pray that sort of thing. And they think they pray things like this. They'll say, God, if you let me win this lottery, I'll give half of it to the church. Or I'll buy my brother those tires that he needs, you know? Or I will, I will build a home for the homeless. To which God responds, no, you won't. I know you won't. I've given you jobs before. You didn't share any of that. There's just a little bit of, and you didn't share that stuff. He says, I know for a fact, this is God talking to that person that prays, not in you, that other person that prays. He's, he, God says, I know for a fact that you scraped half of your dinner into the trash can last night and there are people within a 10 minute drive that are starving to death. God says, I know that when I bless you, you're not particularly generous with the excess. Here's, here's a reality, generosity doesn't bloom in excess if it's not rooted in enough. If when you have enough, if you're not generous, God could give you the world and you will still hold it all to yourself. 
the good news was simple. They were hungry, they had food. Those people were hungry. It wasn't right, as they said, to take the blessings of God and to not share, to not tell others where to find what they need. Today is the day of good news, they said. We need to go tell people right now. It's twilight, they stuff their face, they hide some stuff and they're like, we need to go tell people right now. Why? Because if we wait till morning, that has to be a temptation, right? Warm camp, tent, we can go tell them in the morning. If we wait till morning, hear me on this, there will be people who die. They will die tonight if we don't tell them where to find the food. We can't rest. We can't wait till morning. We have to go tell the people. I don't want to be cynical about this, but I've seen study after study that proves that if you were to take a list of the top 10 givers in a church by financial amount, the top 10 givers in a church, and a similar list of the top 10 earners, those lists rarely ever have the same people on them. It's been proven over and over and over again that we tend to take from God and even beg God in our need, but we are so forgetful in our plenty. And it's not just food, it's not just finances. Sometimes God will move in our medical situation, in our family situation, our relational situation. Sometimes God will just literally part the waters so that you don't have to deal with the thing that you are dealing with. And it happens and God blesses you and he gives you what it is that you begged for and you just move on to the next thing. You sent in your request, Amazon delivered it and you just order something else. There are people sitting next to you that really cannot believe that God still acts in miraculous ways for those who love him because you haven't told anybody about the times that God has acted on your behalf. God still acts. We should share, we should speak. As a pastor of this church, this reality confuses me. I don't know how to compute, how to wrap my brain around the, the fact that Second Baptist Church, Conway and Greenbrier, doesn't double every year in attendance. You know why? Because I talk to people all the time, you, all the time, and you will say things like, in this place, it's the most friendly place I've ever been. These people are friendly, they're kind, they're compassionate. They encouraged me, they've accepted me. I was lost, I was scared. And I walked in here and they were greeting and they were warm and they were welcoming. These are the people who walked through the hardest times with me. This is what I need. This is what I needed and I found it. And then I know that you know that everyone else needs that. That there are people in our community that are broken down and beat down and they are walking through this life all by themselves and they look nice and they have it all put together on the outside and they need what you found. We just don't tell them. We don't share with them. We don't run back. And I am telling you today is the day of good news. And if you wait till morning, it will be too late. I don't know why we don't double. I give years a long time. I mean, you know people that are hurting? Why ain't they here? That's an empty seat. That's an empty seat. That's an empty seat. There's empty seats. Why aren't people sitting in those seats? Do you not like it? Did you not find Jesus? Did you not find community? You know the need. You know their name and their face and their pain. Why aren't they sitting here? 
It confuses me. So the application is pretty practical, financial, uh, medical, parenting. It's all very practical. It's the stuff that you walked in here, the despair that you brought into the room. When we find ourselves in a moment of feeling like we have no solution to a threat, we do what we can and we surrender to God and then we let him do what only he can do. In those moments, we let him do what he, and when he does, then we share it and we tell other people about it. We share and we tell other people about it. It's a beautiful practical lesson. It's not a hard lesson. It's just that we are so quick to forget it, to let go and let God. But it's a shadow. The lesson is a shadow. It's a beautiful shadow, but it points to something else, something substantive, something real. The Bible says that we are born and live in despair, that we are dead and we are dying. And that you may have people around you that laugh and play and tell jokes and mess with you, but they are dead and dying just as well. And that we are walking through life with despair and we can't fix our spiritual death. But the Bible says, the reality is, the truth is that if you surrender to God, if you stop fighting, if you lay down that pride, if you stop thinking you can fix this on your own, if you go ahead and accept, if you just run towards what you feel is the threat, and beg for mercy, you will find mercy. That he will give you what you need, life. That's what the Bible says. And so I want to encourage you to trust God and to find him as your savior. And if you haven't yet, uh, do that. And if you have, tell somebody, go and tell somebody. I am saying this to you, not as a pastor or a preacher, I'm certainly not a prophet or a professor. I am telling you this as one hungry guy that found where the food is. And I'm telling you, you can go get it. And if you know anybody else that needs some, there's plenty. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.